welcome to the forum. We're a non-profit organisation. We put on events where we get academics to come out into the public glare uh, to talk about their work uh, and for you to ask questions of them. Uh, we are totally funded by people such as yourself who donate to us, so if you think our work is valuable, please consider donating to us. You can find our Just Giving page on our website. Uh, you'll also find podcasts of all of our past events, essays by contemporary philosophers, um, and all sorts of other goodies for your troubles. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping issues. If you could turn off your phone, that would be greatly appreciated, or at least turn off the volume. Feel free to tweet along. Uh, we'll be tweeting, and you're welcome to join us if that's your thing. Uh, and uh, this is being recorded for podcast, so if you ask a question, do be aware that your voice will be recorded and it'll go out into the internet forevermore. Uh, okay, that's enough for me. Let me hand you over to our fantastic panel, and thanks again for coming. Uh, hello and welcome to Is Postmodernism to Blame for Our Post-Truth World? I'm Shahida Bari, you can call me Shahida and I'm your chair. We're absolutely delighted at the numbers today. I have to say I'm a little bit surprised, partly because I thought the title of this event was so ungainly. I thought it was like rolling around in a gorse bush um, and uh, Beth suggested calling it Derrida Made Me Dirt. Um, I was going to go with Another fine mess, you've got me into Baudrillard. Um, kind of, we didn't go with that, but you get the idea of where we're heading. This event asks how far the intellectual discourse of postmodernism is responsible for our apparently post-truth world, as audiences are plagued by fake news and politicians openly peddle alternative facts. This event explores the precarious status of truth in the 21st century. Now, the question we pose at the top of the discussion is about postmodernism, if and, and or how far it is implicated. But the broader conception of a post-truth culture or post-truth politics or a post-truth world is also up for interrogation too, I think invariably so. Now, the OED announced post-truth as the word of 2016. I don't know if you can re remember 2016. Um, it was... Uh, an eventful year, um, but by post-truthy OED mean that something that relates or denotes circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. But it does seem to me that we're talking about more than facts, we're talking about a general characteristic, perhaps, of our age, and in some way we want to assess how far this age is the product of, has been contoured by, or is completely indifferent to the discourse of postmodernism. Postmodernism which has been integral to liberatory movements, committed to the diversity of thought, but also committed to the non-essentialism of truth. So to discuss, we have a panel of literary critics, philosophers of science, and philosophers of post-structuralism. Mark Curry is Professor of Contemporary Literature at Queen Mary University of London. He works on the philosophy of fiction and narrative. He's a writer of post-narrative theory, and his latest work considers time and its relation to fiction. He also wrote The Invention of Deconstruction in 2013. <coughs> Alison Gibbons is a reader in contemporary stylistics at Sheffield Hallam University. She writes about experimental fiction, and her new book is Metamodernism, Historic Historicity, Affect, and Depth After Postmodernism. She has an excellent piece in the TLS, a little blog about this very question too. 
James Lederman works largely in the philosophy of science. He's at the University of Bristol, and he's published widely on uh, scientific realism. He's also was a former editor of the British Journal of Philosophy. Is that right? Philosophy of Science. And Hilary Lawson is director of the Institute of Art and Ideas, founder of the greatest, that's not post-truth, that really is true, the greatest um, festival, philosophy festival on earth, How the Light Gets In. He's also a post-realist philosopher known for his theory of closure, and his newest thinking is, handily enough, on the subject of post-truth. Now, we'll be talking first, and we will open up to the audience, as, well, quite soon, because I can see that there are, um, that there are some ardent questions already. Um, but, uh, Alison, you're going to start things off. I feel like it might be useful to have, it would be useful to have a working definition of postmodernism before we point to it as the source of all our modern ailments. Could you give us an idea of what we mean by postmodernism before you tell us whether you take a Jacques attitude to it? Okay. Um, that's quite a big task to define postmodernism very briefly, um, as there's been loads of discussion and arguments and debates about what postmodernism even is. Postmodernism essentially has many faces. Uh, so for somebody like Frederick Jameson, he defined it in relation to three key things. So he said it was about the weakening of history, um, the lack of depth and the waning of effect. Someone else, like Jean Francis Leotard, said that it was a rejection of grand narratives, so kind of universal structures like progress. Um, and then we have the post-structural thinkers who are referenced in the abstract for this talk. Uh, so people like Derrida, who said there's nothing outside of the text. Um, so any claims to universal truth are, uh, in a sense, undercut. Um, and if we take all these different modes of thinking in postmodernism together, um, they seem to cast everything as a kind of surface or a fiction or a fabrication. So if that's our working definition of postmodernism, then uh, there's no objective universal truth because everything's fiction or fabrication. And so what other option is there than to turn to our own emotional or personal beliefs? And that's essentially what we often mean when we talk about post-truth or a post-truth world. And such relativity then ultimately leads to a neoliberal valorization of the individual that is our own subjectivity. I'm going to argue, yeah, the, the lights, that's my subjectivity suddenly coming on. Uh, the, lights, the lights came up. Um, I do see postmodernism as responsible for post-truth, but it's a postmodernism that's intimately entangled with the project or political economy of neoliberal capitalism. Uh, and it, I think it's no coincidence in that sense that Donald Trump, this kind of ruthless business tycoon turned president, is the kind of poster boy of post-truth. Um, importantly, then, both neoliberal capitalism and the postmodern post project have, to, to some extent, failed. Um, neoliberal capitalism has often been described itself as containing double truths, and we can clearly see a resonance there with this phrase, post-truth. Um, that's really clear in something like the 2007 to 2008 financial crash, which shows us the capital instability of the free market. Um, so post-truth, post then, uh, it's a consequence of postmodernism, but I also want to argue that it's a reaction to postmodernism, uh, and thus the beginnings of a movement out of or beyond postmodernism. Uh, so in other words, I want to think of it as an after-effect. And I'm using the kind of temporality of the word after specifically here. 
because it shows postmodernism and neoliberal capitalism as being in crisis. Um, some of the legacies of both of those movements are the unequal distribution of global wealth and global poverty, an ability to dismiss, for example, alarming scientific evidence, as we see with climate change. Uh, Donald Trump does this both legitimately, but also in these kind of nonchalant tweets he sends out into the world. Um, and most obviously, this leads us to talk about people having a lack of political accountability. So Donald Trump can seemingly, uh, I think you called it alternative facts. Um, I'm going to say he outright lies often, and I think he does that brazenly and knowingly. Um, and that's kind of what I'm talking about, because politicians may have always lied, but I think they do so now in a very knowing way, and they do so in a way that allows them to get away, from, uh, get away with it. So... Um, what I mean by that is that we're not holding them to account. We're saying, oh, well, we're just post-truth. Um, so post-truth, then, represents not just a crisis of production for people in authority, people like politicians, but it also represents a crisis of communication and reception. And that's possible because the contemporary world... Uh, oh, oh. I have to lean forward into the microphone. Chair forward a little um, bit. Just okay. a, a little minor technical adjustment. Uh, whereas I would say it's a crisis of communication and reception too. And I think that's possible because of the concrete details of the contemporary world. So we're able to seek out those institutions, uh, like the news, for example, or newspapers, that fit with our bias. So I watch Channel 4 News, uh, I read The Guardian, and that makes me feel very good about myself. Um, <laughs> because everybody agrees with me, or I agree with everybody else that I encounter. Um, but also, prevalently this world is post-human, uh, post we've become digital. So if you think about your friend circle on Facebook, that reinforces uh, what you think, and that kind of so-called echo chamber uh, of Twitter. And actually I think that's really unhelpful, and I think it leads to something quite unethical. Um, in his conceptualization of the post-truth era, Ralph Keyes talks about it as existing in this, um, he calls it an ethical twilight zone. And that's really problematic, I think. So I want to end my contribution to this debate by suggesting that post-truth, both as an expression but also as a larger structure of feeling, might offer some hope and that's a hope that we have to ourselves put into action by moving once and for all past postmodernism. So for me, the term post-truth is quite telling. On one hand, this, this word post, this prefix, tells us that we are kind of moving past something. It suggests that we've done away with truth. But on the other hand, it's still holding truth up as an important touchstone. We haven't actually got away with it. We still want that in some way. So I want to suggest that the reason we have post-truth and the reason we live in a post-truth society is telling us that we actually want to reconnect with each other outside of the text. We want to revisit some important grand narratives, those that signal something important for global ethics, like climate change, like global uh, poverty, for example. Um, and we want to reboot concepts of depth, history, and effect. And, and that's an argument that... Um, Robin van der Nacker, uh, myself and Timotheus Vermeulen make in the book uh, Metamodernism. So ultimately then, I think we have to prioritise not only our personal experiences or beliefs, 
but also start to invest in mutuality. So invest in trust, in respect, and in dialogue. If we want to protect our shared future, if we think about the logical consequences of climate change, for instance, we have to do so collectively by acting in the present. And to do that, we have to engage with each other, not just digitally, not just on Facebook, not just on Twitter, but in the real world. So what I want to suggest is we need to start thinking about ways to, embed, to create a kind of structural intervention in society. So thinking about putting in schools ways of dialogic conceptual thinking, uh, listening to the arguments of others in the spirit of communication with a goal of moving towards some sort of mutual understanding, not extreme left and extreme right. So my closing statement, I'm getting there. Post-truth is an after-effect of postmodernism, a postmodernism in crisis, and one that I hope is short-lived. And I'm hoping that post-truth will act as a driver to move us into a much more ethically engaged future. So that's my wave vigorously at us if you can't hear us at any, any moment, although it's lovely getting mysterious notes in Sorry, the middle of... Uh, will you wave vigorously if you can't hear us? <laughs> um, which seemed like a slightly postmodern moment that you just did that. Um, some of you still can't hear us, so maybe we'll all kind of shuffle a bit closer to the mics. Um, I am very interested that you utter the words postmodernism and neoliberalism in the same breath. Okay. Postmodernism and neoliberalism, because it, it strikes me that... Um, one account of postmodernism might be as an aesthetic and philosophical project, uh, which is quite different from the consumerism and mass culture that characterizes neoliberalism. So uh, I want to put it to you that um, you've already mentioned the big orange elephant in the room. Trump isn't reading Roberto Bellano, right? Um, I'm more inclined to blame The Apprentice, right? Mass culture. Um, uh, consumerism, the apprentice for Trump rather than a postmodern experiment. What would you say to that? I don't think he needs to read those things. I think postmodernism, both as an aesthetic, but also with all the ideological implications that run through postmodernism, and I think it's wrong to think they don't, um, they've become really mainstream. Postmodernism isn't a highbrow cultural movement anymore. It's, it's oversaturated the market, is my opinion. Um, for example, we've already been postmodern and meta by saying, I'm going to move into the microphone. Um, and we know that's funny and that's a joke and it's ironic. We play with that in our everyday lives. It's not, it's not a complicated strategy. Um, so remind me of the question. So I'm saying it's not Roberto Bellano's fault. It's the apprentice's <laughs> fault, right? I don't know if other people feel the same, but at the moment I can't bring myself to watch The Apprentice, partly because I feel... it's if anything is responsible for the rise of Trump, it's a culture of celebrity and consumerism and mass culture. Okay, but if we take that back to postmodernism, that's a breakdown of high and low culture, isn't it? Um, and it's wrong to think that's not ideological. Um, Let's get our other thinkers in. Do, did any of you have a repost for Alison, or did you agree wildly? <laughs> I've got a feeling this is one of those events where we end up uh, violently agreeing with each other, apart from James, maybe. No? Well, I have a question, Alison. So I, I agree with many of your sentiments, but um, I'm not quite sure where you are on the question of truth. In what so, sense? So you were saying you 
uh, in your account of post-truth that you see it as a move beyond postmodernism. Um, but do you want truth back or not? I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to revert back to pre-postmodernism. I think it, it is so prevalent as a strategy or as a, a, a movement. Um, but I think we have to acknowledge that personal subjective truths aren't, aren't merely relativist, but they, ha they have force, they have something in them. Uh, and I think, I think that in itself can be powerful. So I'm not, go I'm not suggesting we go back to a totalizing rational truth. Okay, that seems like, sorry, I, I think that seems like a good moment, a balanced, measured, kind of middle of the fence position, Alison. It's like a good moment to get James in. Um, James, in our email exchange, exchanges, I had the feeling that you could not wait to get the boots into Baudria. Um, but maybe you can tell me why a philosopher of science might rail against postmodernism and what, that, what you think that has to do with a post-truth culture. Thank you. Yeah. Um, part of the reason I rail against postmodernism is because I think uh, there's a great deal of confusion um, ab abroad. And uh, this has to do with... Uh, irony of the postmodernists claiming the mantle of um, anti-oppressive movements. So one of the characteristics perhaps of a postmodern age is the undermining of various meta-narratives and among those are um, Christianity, Marxism and science but also um, a kind of meta-narratives meta and hegemony of race, of class, of gender, of sexuality. Uh, and I would like to point out that one can reject all of those bad hegemonies without buying into any bad philosophy. And the, the first kind of postmodern irony for me is that I think of postmodernism as really uh, intrinsically conservative uh, philosophy or a philosophy that, that enables conservatism. And, um, and yet, many of its adherents have tried to claim a kind of um, superiority uh, a, 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 as if they were the true uh, custodians of, of the various liberation movements. Uh, actually, liberation movements have always relied upon and will continue to rely upon the careful marshalling of facts and evidence in order to make up for the fact that they don't have power uh, and wealth. And... Really, I think that we should um, see postmodernist sort of repudiation of uh, objective fact, of, of evidence, of truth, of there being knowledge, right and wrong, and so on, as really basically playing into the hands of the, of the forces of, of darkness. Now, um, <laughs> it would have been good if the lights had gone down a bit then. <laughs> but the, um, the other irony is that there's, there's this idea of post-truth, uh, but what we're talking about a lot of the time is sort of post-science. You know, we're talking about uh, politicians, and we call politicians have always lied. Well, they, they never felt comfortable really denying uh, scientific knowledge, but they do now, and that's, that's different, that's changed. And likewise, I think what's happened is that lots of journalists have decided that balance requires them to just never take any, any stand and always to treat any view as worthy of airing, that it's somehow anti-democratic uh, not to treat all views as equal. 
And the reason why this is so ironic is, of course, at the same time, we live in a world... I mean, it would be absolutely absurd to say we live in a post-scientific world, wouldn't it? Because what we're being told that we're being thrown back on our personal opinions, and many people can't navigate around town without following a device that relies upon general relativity to tell GPS where they are at any given moment in time. So, and that's just, that's just one tiny aspect uh, of the ways in which our lives are utterly dependent on scientific knowledge. So if we think back, um, you know, I teach people about the scientific revolution and various people in the 17th century imagining a project to deliver scientific knowledge. They promised all sorts of things. They had all sorts of uh, aspirations. Those um, aspirations have largely been fulfilled. The amount of knowledge that we have is absolutely off the scale. Technology is off the scale. The role in which uh, the role it plays in our lives is absolutely fundamental. The most notable thing about our age, in a way, is our utter dependence on scientific knowledge. And so, deeply ironic that we then have a culture. And I think you know, it's it's ironic, but it's not accidental because what's what's happening is that. The, the, the dependency of people on, on science, on knowledge, on technology is also alienating because for many of them they have no idea where it comes from, they have no personal connection with it, they don't understand how any of it works. And so uh, postmodernism you know, is, is encouraging people to think, oh, it's okay, you don't have to worry about your ignorance. And indeed, I mean flattering people into believing in their kind of epistemic omniscience. You know, tell me what you think. You must have an opinion about everything, whereas, in fact, most of us should probably have much fewer, many fewer opinions than we have because we're just not in a position to know, and things are incredibly complicated. And, um, you know... There's a kind of popular culture that, that, that suggests that really you know, we shouldn't bother lining up experts to give us views, views on the issues of the day. We should just get what people think. And this is a, a terrible mistake. Most of what most people think is of no use to us in trying to understand the issues of the day because they don't have the relevant knowledge. And I say this not as someone who takes myself to have the relevant knowledge. I have no idea about you know, great deal of most matters of fact, right? I mean, I'm invited to have opinions about whether or not this or that should be done in remote corners of the world, whilst at the same time having no idea about those countries, their populations, their ethnic groups, their religions, their histories, their political setup, their economies, and so on. And so when someone asks me, what do you think we should do, my answer should be, I have absolutely no idea. You should find an expert. You should make sure, in fact, that you let policy be determined by knowledge because contrary to how we're, um, what we're flattered into believing or contrary to what um, postmodern kind of alienation, the, the flip side of it, what makes us want to believe, the world is incredibly complicated. It, it, it is not simple. And this conceit, um, this, this canard, that what you need to do is just think about how you feel about it and then that should, be, that should enable you to decide what to do is, is frankly absurd. Okay, now, um, postmodernism, as I said, is associated with these meta-narratives, but I absolutely am not defending any of those, but I think that there are a couple of meta-narratives that are, are worth defending. So not the, the meta-narratives of, of Christianity or, I don't know, you know, um, 
the, the, the rise of the West or whatever, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I, I, don't, you know, I, I don't want to defend that. But meta-narrative of, of the increase of scientific knowledge, well, it's undeniable. It, it, we, have, we know a lot more about the world than we used to. We know staggering amounts about the world, more than we could possibly have imagined. And the other meta-narrative I'm kind of in favor of, and apparently this makes me modernist or reactionary or whatever, is a meta-narrative of progress towards conception of universal human rights, which is unprecedented in almost every culture on Earth throughout the whole of human history. And we now have a situation where we recognize that there is human rights, that there shouldn't be slavery or oppression or discrimination against people on grounds of sexuality, class, gender, race, and rightly so. Um, so that, to me, is a meta-narrative worth holding on to, and um, yeah, if that that's makes me a modernist, fair enough. Um, the, um, the other point I would make, really, is just that... Um, when it comes to sort of responsibility, obviously there are many causal factors at work. Uh, social media must be one. Neoliberalism is another. Um, but I do think that one relevant social factor is that the permeation of relativism and um, a kind of epistemic um, democratization, or, 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 or I mean, it's a, it's a sort of bastardized version of democracy, right? That um, all people's views are of equal worth. Now, I mean, I believe that all people are of equal worth. Um, it's, it's, that's, that's not at, at all the same thing as thinking that their views are of equal worth. Um, and um, that has permeated the arts and humanities, those kinds of ideas, to, to, to the point, to the extent that when I, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, going into the academy, encountering people in the arts and humanities who thought that, Talking about knowledge or truth was tantamount to a form of oppression. Um, it, was, it, was, it was definitely somehow uh, anti-progressive. And I think that that has... I think where we can see a certain causal responsibility is that, well, a lot of what we're talking about is a failure of journalism, and I think many journalists have been ed educated by people in the arts and humanities, who may have all sorts of interesting things to say about cultural criticism and our uh, and, and kind of our, our our situation about art, about aesthetics, and so on, but who've accompanied it with accompanied that with with just confused and half-baked philosophy and lots of stuff about no truth with a capital T. And I just think, well, I don't care if you write it with a capital T. I mean, if I, you know. What does that even mean? I've, I've, never, I've never wanted to write truth with a capital T. Uh, I just want quotidian truth, everyday truth, which is as Im is important as ever. And I would say, as I, as I began, I mean, I think probably I, I've said enough um, for the moment, that truth and, and reason are the enemies of people who hide their crimes and the friends of those whose suffering is hidden. Thank you. There is something undeniable... I say this as a Derrida person. There is something undeniably bracing about hearing you, your invocation for the quotidian and uh, everyday sense. Um, what I want to put to you is this idea that... It's not that um, people don't know and are ignorant. 
It's that they don't know and are ignorant and don't care. So what I mean by that is that people know that climate change is happening and it doesn't matter. It's the and that's interesting, I think, in this, in this conversation. The tr what I'm saying to you here is something about the, the truth of science perhaps is not enough. It might be a truth, but it's not enough to in evoke uh, action for a collective good, whereas the ramblings of an ideologue like Trump are enough to make them feel as though they are acting in a collective good. So what I'm saying to you is that science might want to cherish a kind of truth, but that truth is not enough for a general audience or a community or a country. And it seems to me, isn't that the fault of science? That it's never known how to address the most, more intangible aspects of people's psyche or feelings or senses of... Um, Neglect, isn't, isn't, it's not postmodernism to blame, but science is to blame. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I would mean, I say is, 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 I mean, it's it never been science's job to, to give us an ethical framework or um, a political framework. Now, I mean, I think there's been overreach by, by scientists and, and, and there's also been science fraud and ideological distortion of science. And, and one of my you know, key things I want to say is that I absolutely welcome uh, critique of science. That's part of science. I mean, that is kind of the difference between science and other um, cultural repositories of, 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 of authorised belief or socially legitimated belief is that science's belief... Uh, science is self-correcting or, or it is subject to correction. So, for example, um, there were racist theories in physiology. Um, there are sexist theories in physiology. There have been racist theories in primatology. Uh, there have been uh, homophobic theories in psychiatry. And I absolutely want to endorse the critique of those mistaken bad theories. But hang on, hang on. My critique isn't of the critique of bad science. My critique is about the inability of science to make its truth have purchase. That's what I'm asking you about. Right, but I suppose I would just say that's a, bit, that's a kind of category mistake. It's a bit like saying, you know, mathematicians have never told us how to be good people. I mean, that's, that's just not their job. Um, I mean, it's not the job of science to provide us with an emancipatory political ideology. I mean, that, that's, that's a, a different role. So wh why would we expect science to do that? It seems we, we shouldn't. I don't think we would expect it to, but this debate is about postmodernism and about post-truth culture, I guess. So I'm saying that there, that may not be science's role, but to blame postmodernism is to overlook the ways in which science can't speak and doesn't speak to an audience or a country. But specifically, I mean, what I'm blaming postmodernism for, in part, I think, is the kind of cultural climate in respect of truth and knowledge. I'm not blaming postmodernism for the um, misadventures of uh, big powers in foreign countries or uh, the destruction of the environment by big business and you know, greed and corporate interest or whatever. I mean, I don't think those things are the fault of postmodernism. Those things are the fault of human frailty, you know, greed, um, selfishness, expediency, um, incompetence, corruption, and so on. Can I get, um, Mark, your, I wondered if you were huffing and expostulating at the characterization of postmodernism here? Or? 
Yes, did you hear me, Huff? <laughs> I don't know the audience, so they were having oral audio problems, but um, I heard the huffing. Um, yes, I, I suppose so. I don't, I don't really want to preempt what I'm going to say in response to, to your question, but I do think that um, there's a version of postmodernism in that which is akin to um, an alternative fact. It's uh, not something that I can see that it can in any way be supported by the careful marshalling of fact or evidence or argument. Um, and so I kind of think that it's, uh, uh, it's, it's the, the, the work that, uh, that uh, a summation of oh, postmodern... Sorry. sorry. It's, it's, a, it's a conception of postmodernism which, which I think can be found in a certain kind of summary of postmodernism, but would be difficult to support. But I can say more about that. I'm going to ask Mark a question in a moment. But Hilary, did you have a response to James? Well, I'm afraid I'm just going to repeat what, what Mark said. Is uh, There are plenty of things that I'd like to say to James, but probably better uh, to say them as an overall story, which, you, which I'll do when you come to me. Okay, so um, I think that means James await the assault to come. I want to um, turn to Mark. Um, so my question for Mark is: Are, are, are post, is postmodernism and poststructuralism to are they being misrepresented here, and are they being made scapegoats for this particular historical and political conjuncture? Well, my answer to both of those questions is, is definitely yes. Um, I think that uh, my basic position would be that um, postmodernism, as I understand it, is much more an analysis of post-truth than it is an espousal of post-truth. I find it very difficult to understand the idea that that, uh, postmodern philosophy might have some interest in the uh, eradication of the distinction between truth and lies, um, or even an abolition of the topic of truth from from the, 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 the realms of philosophy. Um, when, I, when I explain postmodernism, I don't actually refer to truth at all. I, I, I talk about postmodernism primarily through, the, through, through, the quest, through questions of time. Um, and I think that very often those uh, misunderstandings of, post, of postmodernism they have a kind of history which, which systematically displaces questions of time with questions of truth. Um, part of that history is, is, um, is the history of the reception of deconstruction in the United States. Um, I think that, that that involved a certain kind of translation of a set of issues that you found in Derrida um, into a set of issues which were much more um, uh, relevant to the reading of literary texts in English departments in America. Uh, so th- there is a history of that, of that misunderstanding, I think. Um, Leotard is one of the people most commonly invoked uh, when, uh, when this sort of version of postmodernism is, is, um, is constructed. Uh, and it's always to the same bit of Leotard. It's the notion of the grand narrative. Um, it's fragmentation into little narratives. But... There was something else that uh, is hardly ever discussed that Lyotard said about the nature of postmodernism, which is that it, it, it really represents a kind of significant change of tense in cultural productions in general. And he, he named that tense the future anterior. That is a, a kind of forward-lookingness, um, which you find in cultural productions, but you also find in philosophical descriptions and, and responses to those cultural productions. This is something that Derrida, that the, the phrase future anterior, the idea that, that future 
Anterior was a, a way of thinking about the to come was something that Derrida had said long before that. So Lyotard said that in 1978. Derrida said something like that in, of grammatology in 1967. Um, uh, he described a world which was being ushered in as a kind of monstrosity. And one understanding of, of, of post-truth is that it is that world of, of monstrosity being ushered in and analyzed by deconstruction. Now, I'm, I'm interested in that idea of the to come because I, I think that the idea that postmodernism can be thought of primarily as a relationship with the future um, and that truth is a secondary issue, and I'm interested in it primarily because it relates so well to the many things that are said in connection with post-truth that have to do with alternative news uh, or fake news. Uh, the idea that news might somehow systematically represent falsehoods. Now, my interest in that is partly that um, I think that uh, Derrida was one of the people who, who did say news itself, print journalism in particular, has a future orientation. It produces the event that it purports to record. Um, that somehow the archiving of, of an event ma makes it happen uh, and that this gives it a future orientation. But in the discussion of post-truth, there's a much more straightforward way, I think, in which news bears a relationship with a future, and that is that news has somehow also changed its tense so that it increasingly doesn't represent event which, events which have taken place in the past. It represents events that are still to come, um, which might seem at first a rather strange kind of account. Sometimes news has an alibi, which is that it reports on something which has been said by somebody who is capable of predicting, predicting a future. But there is a kind of uh, futural quality in an awful lot of the news that we, uh, that, that we particularly see, I think, on the front covers of print, of print journalism. Now, this bears an interesting relationship with um, a question in the, in the history of philosophy which is known, um, an ancient problem which is known as the problem of future contingents, that future contingents are statements about the future which exist in a strange kind of limbo as regards their status, uh, their truth status, that we have to somehow wait for an outcome before we can know whether the statement is true or not. So we only understand its truth or its falsity in retrospect. And the alternative that, to that is the one that Agamben kind of argues for, that the only way of making a, of making a statement about the future which is necessarily true is to restore the contingency to that statement. So in Aristotle's formulation, the future contingent is the question, uh, the statement, there will be a sea battle tomorrow. You have to wait to see if there is one before you can decide its truth status. For Agamben, he argues that the, the, the necessarily true statement of that uh, about the future is that there will or there will not be um, a sea battle tomorrow. So that the, 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 alternative, the alternative possibility is there in the question. The trouble with that, obviously, is that it is, it is what Wittgenstein referred to as a tautology. It's necessarily true in the sense that it's a statement of the obvious. Um, it entails its own truth. Um, now, that, that, so that question about um, uh, a sort of change in orientation in the news, I think is just a way of recognizing that some statements do not fall under the, the jurisdiction of truth in quite the same way. And an awful lot of the uh, statements that Derrida made about truth, I think, are of that kind. They're about performatives, they're about future orientation in, in truth statements. I think that it's quite wrong to say, as Daniel Dennett said recently, for example, that it is 
that there, there's something profoundly evil in postmodernism, that postmodernism has created a fad uh, which makes it respectable uh, to do away with the distinction between truth and lies. I don't think anybody can read Derrida's um, uh, essay, uh, The History of the Lie, um, and think that he doesn't add something significant to an understanding of post-truth. Uh, to, uh, uh, he, that he adds something significant to what Hannah Arendt says about um, truth. Uh, and I'll, I'll just very briefly describe what I think that is. That he says that um, Hannah Arendt um, uh, sketches out a classical formulation of the lie, um, that the lie must be something that you intend. Uh, it, it is based in an intentional model. So if you don't know that you're lying, then somehow you're not lying. That there is this classical formulation of the lie, and then there is the modern political lie. The thing about the modern political lie is that it, uh, it can involve self-deception. That is, the most successful liars are very often the people who are most carried up, carried along uh, by their own fabrications. And that this, uh, this idea of self-deception has all kinds of contexts which Hannah Arendt then has to sort of exclude from her discussion of what a lie is. So he says that this, this idea that you might lie to yourself, it's a kind of schism. Um, and that this schism uh, is most deeply dealt with in psychoanalysis, in Heidegger, um, and in Marx, Mar Marxist accounts of ideology. Um, now, none of these things are acceptable in Han Hannah Arendt's argument because she wants to regard the, uh, the, the, the uh, category, the, the challenging of the category of the lie as one of the first signs of totalitarianism, of the totalitarian regime. So I would say that um, what, De what Derrida does is he, he draws this out. He draws this out from Hannah Arendt. Um, he makes a very interesting modification of the account of, of, of the lie that Hannah Arendt makes. And it is, not to it is not to abolish the distinction between truth and lies. I, I would challenge anybody to point me to the part of Derrida that does challenge that distinction or that in any way significantly assaults, uh, launches an assault on truth itself. Thank you. Sharing mics, uh, it's getting very intimate here. Um, uh, I'm really taken by this idea that postmodernism is an analysis of truth rather than an, uh, an analysis of post-truth rather than an espousal of post-truth. I think it makes me think of Foucault as someone who um, identifies the ways in which reality or a fiction of reality is constructed by political power rather than the idea that he um, enables it. But, this is my but for you, um, it's a bit like when people say to me, when I read Heidegger and I think, you can see in Heidegger the Nazism, you can see how uh, Heidegger gets to Nazism, and then at the same time there is in Heidegger a root out of Nazism too. My problem is that I can't at the moment see how our our disciplines of postmodern philosophy and poststructural philosophy are furnishing a route out of a post-truth dilemma, the dilemma we're in at the moment. Can you see a route out of it? Well, I, I think that the, um, the, 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 the rigorous defense of truth runs some, some dangers, and I think that some of those dangers are the things that postmodern philosophers most pointed to in their analysis of, of post-truth. Um, and, and, you know, to, quite simply, in, in lots of ways, uh, the very idea of post-truth suggests to us that truth must, must be somehow alive. If post-truth uh, has a meaning similar to the term post-irony, uh, it doesn't really designate a, a, a 
an epoch in which we stop telling the truth. It designates an epoch in which the sincere and the ironic statement become inseparable from each other. They circulate, they circulate together. Now, I think that the recognition of the, um, in, of, the, of, the, of the circulation of truth and lies is quite um, necessary in the defense of uh, truth. I think that that's the way that Derrida mounts his defenses of truth. Um, and, I'm not, and, and therefore, I think that the analysis cannot be blamed for the condition of post-truth and might be better understood as the only possible route to understanding where this distinction between truth and lies uh, resides. So one thing that Derrida characteristically does, it's a characteristic de uh, deconstructive move, is to take an opposition but to relocate that opposition inside one of its terms. And I think that that is the... the all that you could say of Derrida's challenge to the concept of truth, that it somehow has the distinction between truth and lies inside the concept of the lie. Uh, James, I'm going to give you a chance to get the boot in back. Did you have...? Um, well, what, one thing I wanted to say was that, I, of course, I'm absolutely no way an expert on Derrida or on po postmodern philosophy, but... Um, bit I know most about is what lots of postmodernist thinkers have said about science and mathematics and what that reminds me of well, I mean what my comment on on their approach would be to quote uh, I mean in a slightly provocative vein but it is a debate after all <laughs> and we're supposed to have fun um to quote Harry Frankfurt I mean I do also actually mean it um where he says that that bullshit is a greater enemy of the truth than lies are and um, what he means by that is that the liar has a concern with the truth. I mean, they, they, they believe that something's the case, and they want you to get you to believe the opposite thing. Um, whereas the bullshitter is really undermining the whole project of saying anything that's valuable as true or false in the first place by uh, obfuscation. And what one finds in a lot of of postmodernist writings about science and mathematics is just that kind of bullshitting. I mean, people purporting to tell you things about relativity theory, quantum mechanics, Gödel's theorem, um, you know, ZF set theory, or whatever. And it's clear to anyone who who reads them, who knows about those things, that they don't know what they're talking about, and they're taking themselves to have a license to kind of pontificate, and they're trading off the. Uh, ignorance and uh, credulity of their readers as well as a certain kind of cult status that they have um, but which in, in there's a kind of uh, makes people think oh yeah they're just all singing all dancing they can comment on every aspect of intellectual culture and in fact they should be a lot more circumspect and stick to what they know about now Derrida knows a lot about Husserl he knows a lot about um, uh, Nietzsche or um, Austin but um, but not not about science and mathematics. And I, I think that part of what goes with, um, with postmodern philosophy, I'm afraid to say, um, is a, a kind of disdain for um, making ideas clear. And, um, and, and, that, and then, you, then, then you're a very slippery, slippery target, as, as Derrida himself was. So... What I would say is, you know, is that I, I find it hard to see how anyone could read Derrida, um, at least Derrida talking about Marxism or whatever, without the slight suspicion that he's just 
having a laugh, really. He's, he's, a, he's just playing with people. He's just sort of saying, how far can I push this? Um, what can I get away with? Well, let's get someone who um, has... Let's get someone who has read Derrida in, on board to tell you whether he really is a charlatan um, uh, and whether he's playing with you for a reason, maybe. Um, Hilary, the post-structural philosophy that has concerned you for many years has always been regarded with suspicion, it seems to me. Is that suspicion justified or misplaced in the context of this post-truth moment that we find ourselves in? Well, I think um, suspicion in some ways is justified uh, because there are aspects of post-modernism which are problematic and profoundly so. So there are some things that I want to agree with James about, um, and that's partly about having an adult discourse and, and uh, not being uh, too vandalistic in our engagement with each other. But uh, I think it's misguided uh, in the sense that I think that some of the underlying forces which led to postmodernism are undeniable. And in that sense, um, I agree with what Alison said at the beginning, which is that we can't go back to modernism. Um, but, but maybe I, I could address the, the question here that we're trying you know, was postmodernism to blame, or is postmodernism to blame for our postmodern world? Um, as I've just indicated, I don't think that postmodernism is to blame in the sense that the withdrawal from truth and the withdrawal from what Rorty described as the really real has been going on for a lot longer than, you know, the 1960s and 70s. Um, I think in, in, in British sort of popular culture in a sense, it's it certainly, you can see the origins of it more than a century ago. I think there's a case for arguing that the underlying uh, move towards uh, post, uh, a post-truth world, uh, you can trace as far back as Kant and the first critique. Um, and and uh, what do I mean by the detail of that? Just a, a little sort of instantaneous history of that to give some, some uh, colour to that claim. Uh, I mean, in 1890, uh, Fraser published The Golden Bough, uh, it was a cataloguing of uh, religious and mythical belief across the world, and it just simply uh, presented different views uh, uh, from the multifarious tribes and cultures that he examined and put them next to each other. And we might think, well, what's so very special about that? But it was an outrage to the, uh, to the culture in late 19th century Britain and that was because he included Christianity as just one of them. And the idea that Christianity was just one of hundreds of uh, uh, mythical stories about the world, uh, which had no particular special place, uh, had shockwaves through uh, the culture. And indeed, uh, Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations was, he won at one point was going to call it remarks on Fraser's golden bow. Uh, and in a sense, I think, you know, Wittgenstein is a postmodernist. Um, he, he, he abandons uh, truth in the sense of a single objective truth. So it starts, you know, a long time ago. And once uh, religious facts disappeared, it wasn't long before moral facts disappeared uh, with uh, stories from anthropologists of Trobriand Islanders and the like. 
and with an awareness of language and the importance of language in our understanding of the world, it wasn't long before that was extended to uh, many of our, our claims that we would make. We would see it as just, you know, a more, we became aware, more aware of the perspectival relative character of our belief. And then post-war, you got people like Kuhn and Feyerabend who extended that to uh, the facts of science. You know, uh, science in the early 20th century was the new religion um, and uh, was the w one thing that gave us direct access to the real. And uh, Kuhn and more radically Feyerabend uh, came along with a story which... Uh, uh, indicated that that wasn't correct and then in w what was really going on is we were operating between different models and choosing between them not necessarily simply on the basis of whether they were observationally proof of the position that we were uh, uh, adopting. So I think postmodernists are just part of this huge wave that has run through culture, a gradual withdrawal from truth. And um, insofar as, you know, it has that been responsible for a post-truth world in the sense of we've abandoned truth and the real, then yes, it, it, in some ways is part of that story, but it's a symptom of that phenomenon. Um, there's a more specific sense, I think. I mean, post-truth in an everyday sense is usually attached to notion of uh, lies and deception and dishonesty. And I think there is a case that postmodernism, uh, by attacking rationalism and Derrida's uh, account of logocentrism, made it look, and, and his attack on decidable meaning, uh, made it look as if uh, we didn't need to be too careful uh, about uh, exactly how consistent our claims were and there was nothing at the bottom of what we were trying to say that we could somehow uh, always interpret it differently. And maybe, maybe that has encouraged... Uh, a culture in which people are more flippant about their uh, uh, views than they, they should be. But as far as m my perspective that I want to offer on this, I am a critic of modernism. I'm a critic of modernism because I don't think, as Alison was outlining, I don't think it's possible to go back to there being an objective truth that we can reach and not least, there is no decent theory about how language is attached to the world. Hilary Putnam, the American philosopher, said the, the theory was in tatters. That's exactly how it is. There is no decent account which makes any sense of realism. And so I don't think it's a possible idea that we go back to that single objective truth. But I am also a critic of postmodernism. And I'm a critic of postmodernism because it is self-referentially incoherent uh, at the outset, relative outset of my career, I wrote a book which is called Reflexivity, the Postmodern Predicament. And it tried to argue that the, the uh, problems of self-reference is both a driver of postmodernism, but also its, uh, its demise. That The problem is that it undermines meaning so radically that it's unable to say anything at all. And so I don't think we can rest easy with postmodernism. So, going back to Alison, I agree, we've got to move forward. The question is how we move forward. And uh, I've had a st some sort of stab at that. I think that we have to give up on the real and, uh, and the idea of objective truth. It's, a, I think, a platonic fantasy that we've had for a couple of thousand years. I do think we have to give up on that. But I do not think 
that we have to give up the tools which made our accounts of the world effective. So I do not think that we need to give up on reason or rationality, and I don't think that we need to give up uh, on the idea of uh, decidable meaning or at least some limited form of that. And I don't think, certainly don't think, we should give up on observation. So I think what we should do instead is instead of thinking that our, our um, accounts of the world, our attempts to describe exactly how it is that we might somehow reach through and touch reality, instead I, I have described this as we, can't, we shouldn't see the world as something which we're trying to describe. We can't get at the world. We should think of it in some sense of being open. And what we do is close that openness with our narratives. And our narratives are not descriptions of the world. That's not what's going on. Our narratives are tools to enable us to intervene. And those tools can be improved. We can refine them. We can apply consistency and rationality to those tools. But they don't somehow get us to arrive. And uh, so I think the mistake that postmodernism made was to, uh, in its uh, abandonment of the real, uh, thought that you had to abandon the tools uh, of uh, reason and empiricism, which were one of the things that has enabled us to build some of the very great things about our culture, and which I would agree with James about. We don't want to throw those out, but we do want to throw, I think, the platonic idea of the, uh, of the, of the real out and uh, instead try and refine our, our accounts of the world uh, through what might be thought of as a rather traditional notion of reason and empiricism. Thank you, Hilary. Greedily eating into the Q&A time, so I, I won't give you a question, but Alison, I wanted to give you a chance to respond since Hilary was agreeing with you, your account of the kind of um, moving beyond postmodernism, post-postmodernism. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I found myself nodding quite a lot at, in that I think how is the most important question, and I like this idea of using narratives as a tool, um, but that has to go beyond narratives in the academy and narratives uh, as, as a way of thought. I think we need to think really carefully about what how means, and that's why I was saying it needs to be more structural. It needs to, it needs to go through and beyond just the people in this room, for example. Thank you. We've got a roving mic. Um, can I have a show of hands for questions? So there are quite a few. We've got about 20 minutes, so I'm going to do our time-honoured strategy of taking three at a time. Um, uh, so maybe we can take the gentleman on the corner there and the, the lady at the back, the second from back row there, and the gentleman there, please. So this gentleman first. Yeah. Um, in the Thetetus, uh, which is one of Plato's dialogues, Protagoras says to Socrates, uh, the truth for me is the truth. Socrates thinks about this for a moment and then completely demolishes it by drawing out from Protagoras what that would mean, uh, because it, everybody presumably would then have their own truth, what would it mean if everybody had their own truth that there is no truth? 
and Protagoras is left speechless and has to start thinking again about what truth might be. Uh, now, what, what, one thing that tells us is that you need a philosopher to get to grips with these tasks. Handily you, enough, we've got some. So what's the question? The, uh, okay, so the question is, in, 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 ter in terms of the history of philosophy, you have Francis Bacon, you have German idealism, Hegel, rejecting Kant's idea that there are things that we can never know. Uh, you, you have certain advances in the history of philosophy. Are we going to turn our back on these advances in the history of philosophy just because uh, it has become unpopular to defend the idea that philosophy can arrive at the truth? Great, thank you. And the question at the back from the lady in the back row? Yes, please. Hi, um, this question is directed to Hilary Lawson. Is, is it correct to say that what you're suggesting is that we move away from a correspondence theory of truth? And in which case, do, would you not agree that our theory of truth will have impact on our theory of how we construct knowledge, so our epistemological theory? And would you not agree that once you reject the correspondence theory of truth, it's not as easy as you suggest to continue um, in faith in empiricism? Because empiricism depends on, I would think, um, correspondence theory of truth. And also, would you say that this is too general a uh, structural shift you're suggesting? Can we not um, break down knowledge into, for example, aesthetic, moral, scientific? And how do you think our models of attempts to construct knowledge will change according to disciplines? Thanks. Sorry, that's two questions. <laughs> I can, I'll make it into one. And there was the question here. Uh, the third row from the bottom there. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, for me, um, uh, postmodernism oh, is what happens to culture because of capitalism. It what happens to us. And there's a relationship between uh, everything that's happening. We've got the ultimate capitalist hap in the White House now. And, um, do we really have to educate people in how we look through capitalism? It's the, Postmodern phenomena seems to me rooted in, in, in the way we value things and money. Surely the answer to get to, through this is to help people, um, help young people to understand what is realer in terms of uh, um, understanding capitalism. Um, so I suppose my question is, would you agree we need to help people understand the relation, their relationship to postmodernism through capitalism. Great. So, our, thank you. Our three questions are we going to turn our back on the advances of philosophy? Um, is this about a correspondence theory of truth? Are we going beyond that? And can we break down knowledge? And the third question was about how do we begin to understand capitalism, it seems to me, especially young people? Any takers? You yes, brave, well, Hillary, sorry, of course. Sorry. You go first. Oh. I'm going to go first. <laughs> um, uh, to uh, respond to your question, yes, I think we do have to abandon the correspondence theory of truth. Um, actually, Wittgenstein came to the same view uh, when he'd finished the Tractatus back in uh, you know, 1918 or something, and uh, other people have uh, pursued it despite the fact that the, uh, the flaws in the correspondence theory of truth were sort of there from the outset. I do think we have to abandon it. But to come to your more salient question of, uh, well, how could we possibly have empiricism if we've abandoned correspondence? And I think this cuts to the really heart of the whole thing. 
And to that, I just want to give you an analogy to see how it might be possible, because I think one has to take this head on. How is it possible to be able to learn from the world if we can't actually uncover its truth? And as, a, as, a, as an indication of that, you may have seen the film My Beautiful Mind, and in it there's a, a, a schizophrenic mathematician who uh, is, um, uh, is very brilliant in terms of his patterning of the world, and he's showing off to his girlfriend. And he says to her, he's in, they're under a, uh, under a sky, and he says to her, um, name an object. And she says, an umbrella or a rose, I don't remember which one it was. Anyway, she, she names an object, and he scans the, the stars, and he says, there, there's the umbrella, and you can see the shape in the stars. And the point of it was that he could find a pattern in the stars for anything that she mentioned. It wouldn't matter what it would be that you could find. And of course that's the case. There are enough uh, patterns that you can make in the stars to make anything. But that doesn't mean to say... We don't think the umbrella is in the stars. We don't think it is what they really are. But that doesn't mean to say it isn't useful. Once you've identified the umbrella, you can track it across the sky. You can say, say, oh, I'll meet you when the umbrella is at the horizon. You can uh, have other patterns that you find in the sky. And if you use them well, you can use them to navigate around the world... They don't have to have anything to do with truth. There's no umbrella up there. There's no rose. But you can still change what you do. And, that, and you can refine them. You can say, oh, wait a minute. The umbrella doesn't seem to have a handle. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, there's a little bit beyond it. Maybe it's some rain that's bounced off the umbrella. So you can always refine your metaphors for the world. And you can make those metaphors work. You don't need truth to make metaphors work. And that's the key to realizing that you, don't, you can give up correspondence, you can give up the real, and you can keep all of the things that James wants to keep in order to make science successful. Gosh, that was rhapsodic and beautiful. <laughs> but I, I, I can't help but notice that James looks terribly dejected after that. Alison, Alison. You don't want to respond? I do, but I think it's okay. I can wait. No, I can wait too. I was just going to talk to a different question, uh, which was just to say that, yes, that was absolutely my point, but it goes beyond our young people, doesn't it? Because if we look at voting demographics, um, young people are voting, and they're voting actually quite sensibly. Um, (laughs) Older people? Maybe not so much. Uh, Sorry, older people that are uh, are in the room. Uh, But this is purely based on uh, a small survey with me and my dad. Um, And we we have very different opinions. So so that kind of educating people about, about... you know, capitalism or any of those things that you're talking about has to go much further than just one group of people. Exactly. And a lot of the, the way that entertainment media is, uh, and, and news media, and it's all come crashing in, takes a, a certain skill set that we have to put in order to unpick that. And a lot of our problems is that making sustainable communities will solve themselves if we give We've, we've got a, a wonderful array of podcasts on. Thank you so much for that. It's an important intervention. We've got some wonderful podcasts on capitalism and the nature of money on our um, forum website as well. James, did you want to come in quickly before I get more questions from you? Well, just quickly, I'd say this is a very postmodern discussion because there are all sorts of ideas being chucked around. Um, capitalism, uh, correspondence theory of truth, empiricism, rationalism. All of these would um, 
they would, would uh, admit of a lot of discussion just to define them. And I find it kind of odd. I mean, what we're really talking about is the destruction of epistemic authority and lack of respect for um, epistemic authority within the wider culture, I think. And, um, you know, the, the fact that I haven't got an adequate philosophical theory of truth seems to me to be irrelevant. I mean, there's loads of things that we don't have adequate philosophical theories about that are very puzzling. We don't uh, take that as a reason to give up on on their existence. I mean, we just think, yeah, it's really hard to say everything about all of that. So um, I find it, you know, I think it's kind of a non sequitur, really, that, you know, the correspondence theory of truth. I mean, I haven't committed myself to that. I, I, I don't even know, know what exactly it would mean. Aristotle said to, uh, to say... To speak truly is to say of what is that it is and to, and to say of what is not that it's not. Um, that's the quotidian sense of truth. That, that's what I'm talking about. The, the other thing i just really quickly say is I think there's often a kind of equivocations go on in these kinds of discussions. So there's a, a kind of um, cool-sounding phrases like everything is a text or um, all we know is our interpretation or indeed um, archiving an event makes it happen. Um, there's, there's, there's a sense in which all of those statements are true, um, but um, there's a sense in which they're false. And, and the, the, the attraction of the claims often turns on confusing the two senses. So, in, you know, everything admits of interpretation, yes. Does that mean that all there is is interpretation? No. Uh, archiving an event makes it a... Uh, recorded bit of history makes it the subject of agreement about what has happened? Yes. Does it actually make the event happen? No. Uh, and so on. I feel like you were saying you could see the umbrella in the stars and then you were like, there's no umbrella in the stars. Let's there get, no through. Let's get three more questions. Um, so, the gentleman on the far corner there, um, the gentleman there, and another hand. This one here, the second row, please. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, given that um, it's about 1950 years since uh, somebody recorded Pontius Pilate saying what is truth, doesn't the argument suggest that the answer to the question is no uh, because we've been in a post-truth um, society since the beginning of time? And several people mentioned... Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. So um, how long do you think we'll be having this argument <laughs> in the future? <laughs> yeah, that uh, other question was here. Um, Thank well, you. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, my question was actually quite similar to that one, uh, but I'll probably just add on to it to give another dimension to it. So there appears to be an assumption here in the lecture hall that we do live in a post-truth world. Uh, as we know, lies and politics is nothing really new. So my question to the panel is how new really is the phenomenon of post-truth? How does it differ from the lies and falsehoods peddled in other totalitarianism regimes, say, of those of the early 20th century? And then perhaps to add another question. Um, so to what extent could it be best understood as a kind of systemic, a systematic or systemic reorientation of what forms of political discourse are to be valued, and to what extent the traditional institutions of knowledge-making and knowledge-producing of truth are to be trusted. That's a good question about institutions, so we'll keep that part of it, I think. And the question at the front here, please. The lady on the second row. Hi. Um, my question is kind of around the idea of if the meta-narrative of religion is one we should do away with, and if philosophy is giving us definitions that aren't adequate for things, and 
it's never been science's job, as you say, to tell us, to give us moral truths or tell us what we should do, then how do we find any of those things out? Kind of what is our route to any kind of moral or ethical standing point? Great question. So post-truth society is at old hat. To what extent is this systemic and institutional and I think your question was like beyond science and philosophy, meta-narratives. Any takers? Um, I'd like to address the the first question, um, the the ancientness of post-truth. I I absolutely agree that uh, post-truth cannot be thought of in an epochal way. In, in, uh, I, to, in order to prepare myself for the notion that post-truth was a modern phenomenon, I read Matthew Dancona's little book on post-truth. And the most disturbing thing, he said many things that I, I valued highly. I thought he is a really good description of a, of a post-truth world. But there was something that, that alarmed me in it. Um, and that is that in order to oppose the epochal underst- uh, notion of post-truth, that what I mustn't do is be a scholar, because if I am a scholar, then uh, what I say will be difficult to follow um, and it will be boring. Uh, and therefore that I have to find some other way. Now, it's possible that this is what is epochal, and this might be the reason that the, the question runs and runs, because in a sense, Matthew Dancona is kind of suggesting that we turn our backs on the whole history of the philosophy of truth um, and launch instead some kind of... Um, counter-alternative fact, something which is graspable and which is not, so the conduct of the discussion is no longer on the basis of philosophical reason. And I think that's very concerning, very worrying. I just want to come in on on both of these questions about uh, whether this is anything new. I mean, I don't think post-truth is an epoch or an era or or a kind of world, although I think it's a handy uh, tag for it right now. But I don't think the difference is that politicians are lying or that there's something unique about truth or lies in in this world. I think the difference is to do with what we're doing with truth and lies socially. It all comes down to the way we're receiving them and how, as a community, we're understanding statements. Um, So for me, it's all about community and and that crisis. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we should be really clear that almost all of the beliefs that almost all of them, all of us have, we have because someone told us them. That, in the end, is the source of almost all of our beliefs. We believe things because other people tell us them. Now, the issue is not, are we going to do something different? The issue is, who do we want to tell us what to believe? Now, what we've created is institutions that are better than, than nothing, better than rubbish, better than lies, better than just listening to those in power, at finding out the way the world is. And what we should be concentrating on is how to make those institutions work better. We should be analysing when they fail and why they fail and what conditions are associated with their failure so we can uh, limit those conditions holding in the future. But if you just adopt a kind of blanket oh there's no truth there's no there's no knowledge or uh, a kind of epistemic leveling of the ground then you, that, that project can't be carried out right? but we need that it's vital that that project is carried out and so that's why i i am here as a kind of opponent of of postmodernism not because i think you know we should just believe what 
we get told by science or epistemic authorities, but that we have to have the notion of epistemic authority so that we can criticize them when they fail and we can find them, we, we can say that these are the things they should be doing. These, this is the, the way they should work. And then when they fail, we should look at them and say, right, you, this is what you've done wrong. And, and it's, it's precisely having standards of correctness that's necessary for critique uh, and to, to make the world a better place. So that, that would be my perspective on that. There's a nice olive branch um, in, a, on a, in the moment where there is a plague on the house of academics and experts, of course, and we're, we're all involved in that. Should we get two more questions in the last five minutes? One here, and uh, the gentleman at the very end there, because I tried to get to you earlier, didn't I? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, if we understand truth Hold it as, close up to your mouth. Thank okay. You. Um, if we understand truth as something that emerges from trusted uh, discourse, like J James said, we're always told what is true. Uh, if we understand in the pre-modern era, this comes from uh, the Bible and God, whatever God is, and so on. And then in the modern era, with the dawn of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, uh, it starts to become our own understanding. Reason becomes our new myth, if you will. Um, could it be that uh, in the contemporary time, when we are bombarded with uh, many opinions in the media, uh, many lives in celebrity culture, and many people's perhaps unfounded opinions with social media, um, that this new conception of truth, this new seeming uh, crisis of truth, comes from uh, the fact that we are bombarded with almost too many sources, uh, and that to sort of misappropriate a quote from Nietzsche, <laughs> we're living now not only among the ruins of God, but also the ruins of reason. Great, thank you. So, too many sources. And the other question was there. Thank you. Um, the more we talk about postmodernism, both within politics and philosophy, but also to a lesser extent in art and literature, the more it reminds me of certain parts of Nietzsche and Spengler, in particularly when Spengler discusses the terminal, uh, the terminal stages of a of a culture civilization's life cycle. Its last artistic movements are typically are described by him as being labyrinthine, Byzantine, Mandarin, and complex for complexity's sake without any real meaning behind them, as well as we have um, Nietzsche's idea of this strange inversion of, so of Socrates' cave, where once you come out into the light of reason, you realize that there isn't really anything left there and left to do, and in a way, truth is even life-denying. Um, so I'm wondering if there's some sort of way we could look at postmodernism through this Nietzschean-Spenglerian lens where uh, artistic postmodernism is just this result of being in the end stage of a civilization's artistic expression. Postmodern philosophy is what you do when you have came to the limit of the cultural knowledge and understanding and have nothing to do but look at your hands. So, and so the I, end I, of I, po post-truth politics is just sort of what politics looks like when these civilizations are dying according so to their life cycle. the two cycles. questions I've got are um, too many sources of truth, and that seemed to me something about postmodernism and post-truth as a kind of end game, which is a rather ominous note to end on. But any takers? 
Well, I think that um, postmodernism, postmodern theory was a kind of end game, especially I think it's social theory, uh, that kind of theory which argued that originality was no longer um, uh, available to us, uh, that all we had left to do was to, to cite the past and, re and, and repeat it. And then something else happened. And what, what is that something else? I think it might have been the end of the, the millennium. Uh, it does feel to me as if um, all those questions have opened up in a different way again since, and there's been a kind of concerted refurbishment of the concept of truth in uh, philosophy in Paris. So it doesn't feel to me anymore as if the future is blocked in the way that was once described in postmodernism. It feels as if the future is suddenly opened up again. Uh, can I... Um, I mean, I think the gentleman here mentioned the issue about are we in the ruins of reason. Um, uh, of course, in some sense, I was saying that is one of the dangers of the way that postmodernism has played out. It's made it look as if we're in the ruins of reason. Um, and I think that there are lots of misunderstandings about what is involved in giving up the real. As I say, I don't think we've got any choice but to give up the real. There's no way back. We're not going to get modernism back. Uh, however much those who want to say we've lost a great deal with it and are scared about what a world is without the authority of it, we're just not going to get it back. And, and the puzzle is what do we do about it going forward? And I think one of the reasons why we don't have to be as scared in giving up the real as uh, some people feel is because it doesn't have the consequences that we uh, often think that it has. We just think that, well, it means anything goes, you can say anything, everybody's equal uh, in terms of uh, every view is uh, equivalent and so forth. Those I do not think follow. I think that it's just as possible to respond to a uh, view that somebody is putting forward by challenging their consistency or challenging an observation which they would accept and forcing them to improve on their narrative without a commitment to the real. And the danger of the commitment to the real is um, that it does uh, play into the idea of an ultimate authority. All ultimate authorities have, have in general, all authorities have tended to rather like the real and rather like truth. And they do it for a very good reason, because it is a route to power. And I think we can give that bit up. We can give up uh, the real in that sense of thinking there's one version of the world which is the true one and there's one set of people who've got a way of getting at it but at the same time keep the rigor and the requirement of consistency and observation in order to improve those narratives that we have and in order to be able to improve our ability to intervene in the world better Thank you We've <laughs> uh, We've Really, we've really run out of time. I, can I thank you for uh, following this such a sinewy, thorny, complex, and in the end, I think, really companionable debate? Um, can I ask you to join me in thanking our speakers? And I, and I think you should go out and look at the stars for some brollies. And if you don't think there is one, nudge the person staring at the sky. See you at the next forum event. <laughs>